0: Welcome to VarmBlog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you Prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, you who subscribe here, for you will learn and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's today's episode. Hello, welcome to Varn Blog. Today we're here with One Dime, um, who runs a YouTube channel and a podcast associated that w- on a Patreon, um, and he has been a uh, popularizer of Marxist and MMT overlap in Canada and in general, theoretically. Um, so. I wanted to uh, start off with the question about um, why do you think modern monetary theory is useful for Marxists? Um, Because this, this debate, and it's a debate that I'm actually kind of agnostic on, seems to be something that both sides can get a little bit fiery about, um, I recently had Maxiho of superstructure podcast on, and he was, uh, very subtly, um, critical of, of Marxism, Hegelian ancestry, and seemed to want to distance M T's project from it a little bit. I also know there are Marxists such as, uh, Douglas Lane and, uh, Mo- most Trotskyists for example who are highly critical of neo-chartalism so and there's Doug, he- Doug Henwood yeah Doug Henwood who well I mean <laughs> Doug <laughs> we're recording this in early February of, of uh 2022 for the future so so people would know Doug Henwood's had a who says this Doug Henwood or Paul Volcker or Larry Summers thing going on lately so who knows with him um I mean, he was advocating raising interest rates into the double digits, which no one in the, even in the Fed is advocating. Um, so, um, yeah. So what do you think these two theories uh, have to offer each other?
1: So first off, I'll just give a little brief introduction is, uh, yeah. So I run the channel called One Dime, as well as the podcast associated with it called One Dime Radio. On there, I do videos basically trying to untackle, uh, trying to tackle a lot of issues with, started off with mainly critical theory then kind of went a lot more into political economy. And also just because there's a lot of stuff I've been reading for a long time and I thought why not put these into video essays uh, to kind of help explore the concepts. So yeah, as as you referred, most recently I've done two videos kind of involving modern monetary theory one called The Deficit Myth, The Biggest Lie in Politics, and the most recent one called um, The Problem with Taxing the Rich, in which uh, that one is doesn't use modern monetary theory to kind of debunk the sort of um, narrative that we need to tax the rich just to pay for social programs. Obviously, I'm not against taxing the rich, you know, if it was offered on the table, but this should not be what we rely on to pay for programs. But in that video, I also kind of suggest and imply that uh, – Modern monetary theory is not sufficient, really, for uh, when it comes to solutions to things like inequality. Um, for example, in a, in the second half of the video, I say that the root cause of inequality is private property, something that is pretty obvious to most Marxists. <laughs> but uh, it's a thing that, frankly, I don't really see a lot of the MMTers uh, advocates really talk about. And these, and the more, just in general, not these aren't things I don't I don't see the left as a whole in um, the United States and Canada talk about that we should really be dealing with the question of private property and the fact that you have you know, people buying tons of properties, raising the costs um, and uh, making homes unaffordable as well as the general uh, question of landlords, you know, rent, rentism. Should we, you know, maybe think about overcoming that? Uh, Cause you know, th- So uh, these are the type of questions I want to introduce, which I don't think MMT is sufficient for. So I guess that kind of is the first part of the answer to your question is what do Marxism and MMT offer each other is, I think, uh, on the one hand, Marxism is useful to MMT, mainly because MMT, I don't, I hardly even consider political theory. It's really strictly like an economic theory that is useful for what it suggests, and that is analyzing monetary operations, macroeconomic policy uh but, and that's really what it's designed to do uh the thing is is some of the m m t advocates who only base their politics on m m t and not other theories, i think can be a bit blindsided by the power struggles that will actually take the class struggles to actually achieve the policies that many m m t advocates call for, such as a federal jobs guarantee um universal health care if you're in the united states uh, all sort of policies. Some even advocate for nationalization. Um, some advocate for price controls, different taxes, um, some universal basic income, although many MMT advocates are pretty critical of basic income. Um, but what I think we can learn, what MMT can learn, or rather MMTers, advocates can learn from Marxism, is how do we get this? And I think there's a big historical lesson that I would say more broadly the contemporary left, who's predominantly social democratic, uh, at least when it comes to like the DSA, the biggest factions of the DSA or um, people like that, and or the Bernie Sanders left, is there isn't really an effort to learn from how these policies have historically been implemented in history. We only find that, uh, and this is probably obvious to you, uh, Derek, but <laughs> or some Marxists who who know about like working class history is. Social democratic policies like full employment and um, the nationalization of industries and social welfare programs really only get implemented on a mass scale in response to more radical uh, labor movements, whether it just be militant labor movements, anarchist movements, Marxist movements, as we saw in uh, Finland, uh, sort of before World War II and after World War II, and rest of Scandinavia and Scandinavian countries like Denmark, Sweden. in Norway, as well as, most notably, United States, right? With uh, Roosevelt, you, that didn't come out of a vacuum. That came out of a long history of militant labor struggle. So that the answer is right there: is Class struggle is something we need to really take and learn from, as well as the state. I think the problem that the MMTers have, I, I know I'm throwing a bunch of things here, but it's, it's a big question, so there's a lot of things they, that both sides can learn from each other. But... Um, I would say that a lot of the MMTers, like most notably Warren Mosler, Stephanie Kelton, Randall Ray, Bill Mitchell, even who uh, kind of identifies himself as a Marxist MMTer, they all fa- fall into this trap, um, maybe intentionally or not, that that by assuming that the state is sort of neutral, uh, and obviously this is a big old debate that goes back between Marx and the Social Democratic Party of Germany. And this idea that the state is a neutral thing that can be taken over and we can use the state's policies of issuing, uh, capabilities of issuing currency to direct this to the public purpose. You hear that uh, being talked about a lot, the public purpose. But there isn't really enough thought about how the state, at least capitalist states, are actually constructed and their inherent class bias and class character. Like the way constitutions, for example, of like Canada and the United States are structured, is deliberately to ensure private property rights. Uh, The electoral systems are formed deliberately to prevent majoritarian rule. There's all these things in place that make it not so easy to implement these uh, policies that they often call for. So I think we need to, there needs to be a discussion about that. Uh, That's where Marxism is certainly helpful. Various Marxist theories, theorists, certainly the ones I'm very informed by are Louis Althusser, uh, people like that, uh, Gramsci who I think can be very useful for understanding these things. As, and of course, Marx himself. In the inverse, how do Marxists benefit from MMT? Well, I mean, Marx didn't, could only know what he knew in his time. And at the time, he, uh, he believed in the barter story of money. That, of course, money uh, arose spontaneously out of market exchange, first through barter, then market exchange. Kind of like a very um, medalist view of money. Uh he can't his view of money is very stuck in the time where people were attached current attached currency to either gold or silver or some sort of bullion.
0: And um yeah, yeah. yeah. with one caveat that he does talk about non uh non commodity money and volume two a little bit, but it's credit credit set that yeah. money, and then he mentions the possibility of state money in the Grundessa, but doesn't do anything with it. So you're you're absolutely right, like it is, I mean, I think Bill Mitchell's big thing to point out that yes, there are passages in Marx where he starts to like get that there's something going on there, but it's it's so far out of left field from classical political economy that it's not really gone. It's it's not he doesn't venture down there hardly at all.
1: Yeah, as well. And with uh with Marx, because his um he he could only the anthropology wasn't there to really debunk the barter story that Marx assumed from Adam Smith. Um because of that, he was limited to what was available, right? Mm-hmm. And the problem is, of course, as, as Marxists, if we want to treat Marxism as a science, it has to evolve and has to analyze changes in material conditions. And I think that's where MMT is useful, as it understands modern money um, as well as a, kind of with it the nuances surrounding the story of money and its origins. But all, more importantly, modern money uh, following the removal of the gold standard. Uh, in in the 1970s. So, 19 yeah, 1970s. And um, with that, uh, you have a lot of Marxists today who will put forth really good ideas, but then completely fall flat when it comes to monetary operations. You'll often hear Marxists have policies, and then they'll talk about, oh, raising things through tax revenue. I remember reading uh, Paul Cockshott's book, Towards a New Socialism, which A lot of it I thought was really good and agreed with. It was really innovative and interesting. Then there's a part about budgeting and financing various things. And he talks about tax revenue, funding things. And there's really not a lot of thought that if the government is the issuer of the currency, they don't depend on collecting that currency from people to fund their operations. There isn't that basic thought. And I think it's because MMT questions the most obvious answers. And that is, what is money? Where does it come from? Uh, and and I think we need to be asking those kind of questions and uh it's useful as we alluded to before, some people like uh doug henwood, Marxists like that um, still believe that uh inflation can be fought by raising interest rates, which is not not only does that not work uh it's also it just literally doesn't work to to assume that raising interest rates uh solves inflation assumes that all inflation is caused by Uh, excess printing of money, which is, you know, a a neoliberal monetarist, uh, well, neoclassical assumption uh, popularized by the neoliberal monetarists. And and this has devastating consequences for the working class. Uh, Of course, raising interest rates causes huge unemployment. So it's really troubling. Imagine if we do elect like, you know, socialists into government and they're informed by very backward ideas of money and they think that they need to impose austerity uh, in order to balance budgets or or tax the working class to fund things. So it's really important because um, this informs how, I'll say more broadly, leftists as a whole uh, would act if they get power in uh, anywhere, really.
0: Well, to, to grant you the historical example that I think most people should look at was the Espé day and in in Weimar Germany actually overseeing on uh, an anti-inflation austerity program, which actually turned a lot of the recently unemployed working class against it, moving them to the KPD, which was the Communist Party, are uh to neutrality in regards to the fascist. So, I mean, <laughs> we do have historical evidence that uh Marxists not understanding that they shouldn't do austerity to fund government programs, uh, is not a great idea. Furthermore, um there's other theories involved in that too about monopoly capital and seizure of monopoly capital and um, uh, the bit you know developing developing industry to to then seize on and and socialize later that that informed this. It wasn't just a monetary mistake, but it was definitely part of what they were doing. Um, so yeah. You know, I don't want to oversimplify the picture, but it is it. it we have an example of Marxists making a wrong turn here. We also have Marx. I mean Trotsky, even, um, uh, for example, and Mandel, uh, Ernst Mandel, the European Trotskyist, were were gold standard people. Um, so, <laughs> which, which you know, it, which I find, you know, whatever my feelings about MMT, I find bizarre, given that even in marx that's not a given um uh, it is in capital it is in capital volume 1 but it, it's not elsewhere and um i can't for the life of me figure out why on earth you'd want stronger money unless you had a, a quasi accelerationist theory of crisis or something <laughs> um but so yeah there there are definitely places where this shows up i guess this really shows up in the case of someone like We've mentioned him directly, but Doug Hinwood's done several attacks on modern monetary theory, including not just agreeing with Larry Sum- Summers in the controversy uh, in early February of this year, but even exceeding him in what he thought the the answer would be, which was to raise interest rates um, into the double digit range back, at, which is truly a Volcker a Volcker shock. Um,
1: he called himself a good finance Marxist.
0: Yeah. Oh my like god. That. Yeah, and it's,
1: I, it's it's basically austerity hawkish hawkishness.
0: Yeah, I mean it's and and one that actually goes further than the Fed than the Federal Reserve banks do right now, which is, uh, and given that they're they they are also hawkish, um, that should that should worry us. I, I would, I would, uh the one thing i would say is that and maybe this will get you to the next question here um is that mmt right now has suffered from the fact that it has not let its theories and there are at least two um of inflation be well understood like it hasn't it hasn't pushed that as part of its popularization agenda um but the the thing is, when we look at the Volcker shock, we know from his history it took six years for inflation <laughs> to start to, to go down in any significant amount from from the time period of the of the Fed, you know, bumping up interest rates. That's it's hard to attribute. I mean, I guess one could uh, the Volcker shock for the decrease in inflation they do that's yeah, part of
1: the re- the revisionist economic history
0: right uh, but w- what's funny is is how it's supposed to work so it assumes that the average worker is not is a uh, is not saving but investing their excess money um and so to curtail or, or like spending it on right, like right, yeah, spending yeah, yeah. it right on products, right. But, but, um, but the idea that 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 assumes that the average worker has a is spending it on products that are not necessary, like uh necessities that are not factored into the, the general inflation rate anyway, um and. It assumes that they have the capacity to save when they're when they're not spending. And and also it assumes that banks will will pass the rate increases through interbank loaning on to consumers in in savings accounts. Now I haven't looked at that data in a long time, but just logically, uh, I don't see a lot of evidence that that. that that the average worker could stop spending because of what they're spending stuff on um, and flip to a savings mode. And there's no guarantee that the, that the interest rates um, in savings accounts would raise significantly for, for an increase in interest rate of bank through bank lending.
1: Um, If anything, it makes it a little bit worse. Uh, I mean, there's people like, Warren Mosler and Phil Armstrong have papers about that. Is um, because w- when they raise interest rates, what does this do? It, it shuts a lot of businesses down. This declines productive capacity, decreases competition, raises mm. prices. Uh, and, and also, when you raise interest rates, it's just giving rich people free money because they have higher in- interest y- on their bond yields. So they're getting all this free money. They might actually spend that extra money on stupid stuff. I don't know. To give a Fictional example, like American Psycho's depiction of like yuppie culture, um, you know, the eighties was filled with like stupid consumerism. Both the eighties and the nineties. Um, although that that part, I think the the proof is a little bit mixed as to whether like uh, you know, having the high bond yields makes rich people spend more money because there's also evidence that rich people just hoard their money when they get more of it. Um, but either way, the idea that interest rates would um slop inflation has been Debunked not only by MMT, um, there's there's also just, in, in general, a lot of Keynesian theorists who've come to realize this because there's sort of undeniable proof now uh, with, for example, first with Japan, because Japan is really the first country to do quantitative easing on a massive scale and inflate the money supply. And they, they want, were trying to create inflation uh, because they had, obviously, a population crisis, declining productive capacity, lowering uh, most a population crisis uh, declining demand and declining prices and uh, in, in response to that they try to flood the system with money in a privatized way through you know quantitative easing with private banks creating tons of money zero percent interest rates uh couldn't they they were still in deflation didn't even work to create their goal of like a modest sum of inflation in japan so there's that and you know now since then japan is has a Debt to GDP of over two hundred percent, two hundred fifty, I think percent, and uh, still in deflation. I mean, it's clearly not a uh, relevant. It's not it's clearly not true the quantitative quantitative theory of money. But then there's also the EU. The EU also flooded their system with money in response to uh, 2008 crisis and even more COVID. Uh, but after in the not much inflation really. Uh, United States too. Remember in 2008. Uh, well, not 2000. Not. It was really like 2012, 2010s when Obama was issuing those like huge policies to uh, rescue the economy after the 2008 crash. And remember when people like Rand Paul were saying, or, or Ron Paul, one of them Pauls, were <laughs> trying to say that uh, the U.S. is going to run out of money and that the U.S. is going to have hyperinflation. It's going to mm-hmm. become like Greece. That had never happened Um so it's been debunked. Actually, the quantitative theory of money, which is the idea that the increase in money supply plus an increase in the velocity of money—how much that money is being spent—will equal higher rates of inflation—it's actually been discarded in many economics departments already, just because it's just simply not true. There's a good YouTube channel out there uh, called Money and Macro. Mm-hmm. He's, an, he's an economist. He's not really an outwardly. You know, I never heard him talk about MMT. But I mean, he comes to very similar conclusions regarding inflation, that it's not just increases in money. It's a lot to do with productive capacity, has to do with uh, the ability to set prices and all sort of complexities. And maybe to answer your initial question, part of why I think MMT uh, people, as well as maybe heterodox economists in general, have trouble articulating the nuances of inflation is because it is just simply complex and there's many factors there's supply chains there's the prices the government pays there's the uh, the monopoly uh, monopolies who price gouge there's productive capacity there's all sort of factors uh, and there's also inflation expectations which can create inflation that's another right like, huge weird thing uh so it's compl- complicated it's hard to articulate um compared to like the simple narrative of oh it's just Printing money, because we have the idea in our heads. If there's more money out there, it'll be worth less and it'll devalue. That's how we think of it in our heads. When it's not really what it works like that. I think in the popular imagination, the idea of inflation isn't that inflation is higher prices. It's that inflation is declining value of currency. And then the prices are a response to that when it's actually the other way around. The value of the currency
0: devalues in response to the higher prices right because of yeah so i think it's I mean, like to, we have yeah. currency lose value actually all the time and not see inflation more than three percent um I mean, mm-hmm. if you're just looking through like if you know the history of the last 20 years and in currency exchanges between the u.s and other currencies the u.s is canada big, especially yeah, yeah yeah and with canada the u.s is relative value has gone up and down a lot when i lived abroad it was like a major issue in my life but um uh it didn't change the the organic internal inflation to the united states which is about 2 to 3%. i mean and and um and sometimes actually it seemed to be completely unrelated totally like there was no relationship whatsoever. um so i think that's that you know and i i say this not just from studying economics i say this from my life experience like i lived abroad and and i would notice like oh prices aren't changing very much in the us but the the dollars changing all over the place. Um, so there's that complication. I also think, um, I mean, th- there are debates about what the exact inflation mechanism is. Is it like it's exact relationship to the, to, to production and MMT. And and by this, I, this is not a debate over which mechanisms will work, but which ones are the predominant ones in play. Um, what I would say, uh, is that it is very complicated. And when you start looking at phenomenon, like uh, in economics, we might talk about uh, cost, push and demand pool inflation. But one of the weirder things that I've looked at recently is, is uh, cost push inflation, which the cost of production goes up for supply chain reasons or whatever. Um, But then it turns into, Calling it demand pool is actually incorrect because it's not demand. It's just the prices don't go down even after supply chain normalizes, um, and and stuff like that. This is not an easy thing to just telegraph about, and and unfortunately, I think this is one of the th- this has been a downside of MMT's popularization because the initial explanation actually is easy to understand once you mm-hmm. grasp that currency is not something that like.
1: Yeah, it's exist. not like gold
0: coins, right?
1: Yeah. And
0: even even the gold standard. I mean, like people don't understand. this. like even with gold coins and whatnot.
1: Yeah, the gold was just there to give an illusion of value. When right. It's still like a con- con- construct, because MMT was still applicable to the gold standard. Is that? But the reason why it's not as applicable is because with the gold standard, you can't create as much money as you want because there's a big constraint because you have to fill that up with an equivalent amount of gold. But even then, like the idea that taxes don't drive government spending was also true in the gold standard era because you have Beardsley Rummel, who is uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the 1940s when America was implementing the New Deal um, and or, well, it was long implemented, obviously before, but in like the height of the New Deal or whatever. Uh, he has a paper called Taxes for Revenue are Obsolete, where he comes out and says it. That, you know, mm-hmm. the uh, taxes are there to drive the value of the money, there to control inflation and incentives and or allocation of resources. It's not there to fund federal spending.
0: I think I think this is also something that we have to get even for Marxists to get through their thick skulls sometimes is that wealth and. And nominal income are only kind of related I mean, I know that's a very simple, (laughs) that's a very simple thing. Yeah, well, money is a means to get wealth, not the wealth itself, right? Bingo. So like, even when we have like profit rate debates, which are huge debates, MMT actually doesn't settle that because what, what the profit rates aren't about the nominal rate of profit and currency. They're about the amount of wealth that production would produce. And by wealth, I mean, tangible wealth. Then we have abstract value and all those other things that come out of that, and and these are tied into um, various theories uh, in Marx's various theories of money. Um, I, I'm thinking of the work now of Michael Heinrich, who's trying to use, I think, stuff from the Grundessa to argue that Marx was beginning to develop a monetary theory of value. Um, I. I must say, I'm not whether whether that theory is true or not in reality. The economics is separate from whether I think Marx had it. I don't. I don't see it in Capital. Um, but that's that's neither here nor there as far as our. There's a book out there
1: that I, mm-hmm. I actually got. I never read it yet. Uh, but it's called Marx's Monetary Theory or Marx, yeah, something like that.
0: Marx's Monetary Theory, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah I have that one. I haven't I haven't looked at it yet.
0: Uh, that that particular author has uh, a beef with MMT, but it's it's a very weird technical beef. So, is it um, about
1: labor theory of value? Uh sort of. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine, yeah. But I mean, that's like the, that's it, the debate it, I always find I, I don't really have a stake in mm. because I, on one hand, I don't. I'm not super. Uh, I'm not one of those like labor theory of value orthodox. Types who's like really down to defend it for me for the labor theory of value is for the most part true in the sense that its goal and its purpose was is to prove exploitation and i think for the most part that's true for the majority of firms um so it's like i find it useful but it's not the kind of debate i, I find super interesting about uh yeah, because you know, people try to talk, bring it to machines. and There's that debate. Yeah, I was about I to say that that that's the Steve, Steve
0: King versus yeah. Marxist debate, and the neo Keynesian yeah, versus yeah. Marxist debate over whether or not machines add value. And I remember, I I actually talked to Steve King about this about a decade ago. And it was building up to the Greek crisis, and I was just like, "Well, it like honestly, it really depends on how you interpret social ne- so, social necessary decreases versus adding value." And frankly, that debate is semantic. Like, um, and people are like what? I'm like, it's a semantic debate because because um, if even if you believe that fixed capital can't add value, and I'll, I'll explain what it means, uh, technology decreasing socially necessary labor time would mean it would look just like it. Like the, the prediction is identical to whether or not it adds value or whether or not it just reduces social necessary labor time. It would mean that you could do more work with fewer workers, as long as you had workers involved and that would increase rates of exploitation through variable capital. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if, if the machines are adding value or not. And the other thing is like, and you and I talked about this a little bit, are we hinted at it in in our semi debate over at uh, This business revolution where I agree with you that, um, most Marxists don't agree on what uh, uh, labor theory value actually describes, whether or not it describes um, the statistical aggregate of of an attractor to price price itself, which that one, that one, by the way, is just objectively wrong. Like. If someone tries to convince you that LVT explains individual commodity prices, well,
1: I, I didn't I always <laughs> thought nobody actually argued that except people who on the Internet. Because uh, yeah. that's as obvious if you look at anything like Supreme. No serious Marxist
0: or... argues it. Some some physiocrats do, actually. Mm. But they're, like, I don't know any, I don't think I, I don't think there's been physiocrats since the early 20th century. Like, so, but when you do hear people misunderstand it that way. I think someone argued that Anwar Shrike, uh, Shrike actually accidentally makes this argument somewhere, but I haven't found it. Um so, you know, so just so people know that one, that one, if people argue it, they're wrong. And then there's value form theory, which, which means that value changes forms in a way that's not measurable. Um, So it has no numeric, like it, you can't meaningly talk, meaningfully talk about it as a numeric thing. Is that like,
1: n- like the Graeber critique?
0: Yeah. 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 yeah um and also goes back to like uh isaac rubens and whatnot but it's the idea that that it's it's something so abstract that it's not nominal um or, or or you can express it numerically really um in which case we can't really talk about it in terms of like normal economics right like it's just not useful um but this this actually does bring us to some of the implications of our theory going forward um There are a lot of MMTers who will talk about, you know, crashes and whatnot as simple policy choices, but without any conception of class issues in those policy choices or why, like, they make it sound like, oh, it's just, it's just like, it's just an ideological.
1: Politicians being stupid.
0: Yeah, being stupid. And I'm like. I don't believe that that's the, that, I, I actually think if you look at power relationship between classes, mm. a lot of that stuff makes a lot of sense that they're doing. Um, for oh, example, yeah, right course. now um, raising the interest rate will if it, if it rich people free money, right? If it doesn't um, freeze, it will give, it does change some rich people. They're giving free money to, because they were giving rich people free money another way through quantitative easing. But um but if it doesn't freeze, uh, if it doesn't lead to massive unemployment, it's at least going to lead to, because we have, quote, underemployment right now, I mean, overemployment right now anyway, or whatever, which is weird. Um, it's a weird concept. But uh, we have the, quote, quote, unquote, labor shortage. It will at least depress wages, maybe even, maybe not just real wages, which is always kind of being depressed, but maybe even nominal wages, which means that you see, uh, wage freezes and things going down significantly in comparison to, to inflation. Um, that 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 indicates to me that the the issue here is not just inflation; it's also worker leverage. Um, that's being hit here, and it's Capitalist kind of in, power, right? Um, uh, and I think. I think people need to look at that when they look at this. Yes, I mean w- w- yes, we, we will admit, uh, I think almost everybody will admit inflation above seven percent is bad for you know workers. No one's, yeah, no, one's no one's no one's gonna not say that. Um, but the other thing is, and this I know from Fed documents, they're not expecting inflation to end when they raise rates, at least not immediately. They're not predicting that. Like they're predicting inflation for another two years. So well, I mean it's
1: This goes back actually to your question is how to can MMT articulate the inflation story. And I think there's one way to do it. Um, It's hard because it's obviously there's so much nuances. But I think um, everyone sees the supply chain shortages. It's obvious to anyone who uh, goes to a supermarket and you see less things than you used to. Some things are out of stock it should be obvious to put those two things together. Like that is why there's inflation, or at least that's a big part of why it's not the singular factor, of course, because there's also the price gouging. Um, but that's a huge factor is, is when you have a shortage of goods, the price goes up, you know, and uh, there's a lot of, a lot of conservatives um, or, or the, the uh, not just conservatives, but like, you know, the the, the people who buy into neoclassical economics they fail to make this clear, obvious um, observation that these things are connected. It says, they say shortages must be, because we're, we're becoming like a uh, Soviet Union. <laughs> you hear the people saying that a lot. And you have uh, inflation, they'll say, it's because we're printing money. It's like, can you not tell that these things are connected? Because uh, when the first round of quantitative easing under Trump, which created like uh, the biggest influx of money we've seen in a long time. There wasn't inflation. There wasn't inflation until we started seeing ports close down. And then you started see, seeing the economy open up. You have all this consumer demand all of a sudden, and but like the supply chains just aren't working well. So you have all this new demand, but you got low supply. You get higher prices. And you also got all these firms now who want to compensate for having uh, depreciated rates of profit during COVID, who want to make up for those uh, rates of profit by raising prices. So you got... Yeah, you have that. And I mean there's there's the meme going around which I think kind of explains part of the story where it says uh inflation is at this highest uh, rate since 30 years and it says corporate profits are the highest rate they've been since blah blah blah. Yeah, you can <laughs> see how it's uh, connected. So I think yeah. there's ways to put it together. It's just not easy. I think that's a
0: that's a fair point. Let's let's talk about the this as this is what worries me about this upcoming this upcoming interest rate raise, I've had people who who think in terms of of Democratic and Republican politics, and I've been kind of laughing at them because they're like they're not going to ruin the economy under a Democratic president, and I'm like, why Why do you think that? They forget uh, Clinton existed, right? i was like, Clinton tried you... to balance the budget. <laughs>
1: like people forget that they really tried to balance the budget.
0: Um. Well, the other thing is, I'm I'm like, it's not just the U.S. Fed threatening this, uh the the interest rate raises which while they aren't anything like a vocal raise i will say that um although they may actually be worse in effect because they're not just in one country and the other thing that's going to be and this is a policy i do i am more skeptical of but the other thing they're going to be doing is um uh, in the next couple of months they're going to stop doing bond buybacks so which i will formally end quantitative easing so you will have both an interest rate raise and um, uh, the end of, of QE as we know it. But it's not just the Fed saying they're going to do this. The Bank of Canada said they're going to follow suit. Uh, the Bank of Japan, which I is of, surprised Bank, of about. Yeah, Bank of England too. the Bank of England. I don't. I think the EU. The EU has more legal prohibitions on what they can do, but they think they they were saying they were going to follow suit as well, and so. It looks like we're going to have um, most of the uh, currency sovereign nations, uh, as far you know, embark on um, fiscal austerity or monetary austerity. I mean, I don't, I don't really see how we get around that.
1: Well, I mean, it's an easy answer to kind of refute the idea that uh, we're in an MMT world. I hear that being said a lot. Uh, especially by like the libertarian types they say they'll actually quite often blame inflation out on modern monetary theory because their idea of modern monetary theory is just plainly accepting that deficits don't matter and that um you can just print as much money as you want but i mean like you have republicans come out and say deficits don't matter like dick cheney said reagan proved deficits don't matter uh, it's that's not a MMT position per se, like exclusive to MMT position, but there's this idea that MMT is being like tried and failed when that's clearly not true. Obviously which should be obvious just by the fact that they're considering raising interest rates, but no, we're still in very much in a neoliberal world, a monet monetarist world. I know there's this attempt to say like there's this new Keynesianism and there's all these like opportunists like Paul Krugman who, some people lump in with MMT bizarrely, even though he's he's more like a new neo Keynesian. He used to be a neoliberal, uh, who's kind of now just riding the tide of whatever is <laughs> the uh, dominant uh, yeah, I, positions. I
0: that has to do with his mint the coin talk like a few years ago. But he's never – other than other than that talk being confused with MMT, he's never been an MMT advocate like he's opposed to – He from- used to
1: use pay for us. He used to say that, oh, we're going to like pay for it via this this and this. Mm-hmm. He used to be like that type of Keynesian. I mean he never – that's the thing about Krugman, right? He actually wasn't – in the 90s, he was a neoliberal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so – but anyway, aside from uh, like clowns like that, but uh, when it comes to the interest rates, I mean, this proves we're still in the neoliberal world, which um, now I have, to, and I have a bit of theory with why they're going to do interest rate raises. Uh, and I have no way of knowing this is true because it hasn't happened yet. But my, my theory right now is that they're not actually going to raise interest rates as much as they say they're going to do that. And this applies Mm. to all the countries you mentioned. This is really to like change inflation expectations. I think they're doing this so that people will will think in their head, oh, inflation will get better. And then they'll kind of adjust prices accordingly, the production of goods accordingly. And also a big part of it's investment. Because Mm. I think like uh, inflation expectations definitely cause a lot of fear in the stock market. People will not want to invest. If there's a less inflation expectations people will invest in the stock market because stock market futures and these investments, they're not based on what the economy is now. They're based on what they think it'll be in the future. Right? So I think that will, that that's part of it. I don't think they'll actually do it. If they do actually do it, if you look at it from a non-class analysis standpoint, it just, it's just purely stupid because it'll completely crush the economy. It will depress living standards. It will cause unemployment, but, Uh, it's possible they might do this. And I think it's really draconian and insidious to think that they would, but it's possible because, you know, this labor, quote unquote, labor shortage and the sort of uh, great resignation that's happened has given workers a little bit more leverage than they otherwise had before. And we see that with all these new strikes happening. Uh, People, Workers are starting to become aware that they have more leverage. This could be a way, you know, raising interest rates to completely stomp that.
0: Yeah, I, I've wondered about that too. I mean, one thing with to put the Great Resignation in in context, I, I am sure a lot of a lot of people are voluntarily leaving work. But even I was like, okay, hey, what are they living off of? We haven't had expanded unemployment in a long time. You you can't live off a three hundred dollar tax credit anywhere in the country, like. Um, so maybe some of it's uh, women who didn't return to work because there's still no childcare in the United States context. But this is larger than the U.S. Um, a lot of it is, I mean, if you look at excess deaths, there's a lot more dead people than people are really acknowledging, um, which I know is morbid. But we really do have to like, there are a lot of people who died in the last, you know, two years. I mean, in the mm-hmm. U- U.S. we're approaching, we're over a million excess and, so, and we're approaching a million diagnosed COVID. So it's like that should affect an economy. Um, the The... The bigger int- the issue that I've wondered about, though, is we also know that the U.S. has been um, narrowing its, you know, its, quote, worker productivity or efficiency, or I would call it exploitation rate for the past two decades, meaning that there wasn't a lot of excess capacity of labor anyway. So a small change in employability would actually make it seem like there was this massive labor shortage when it's actually they'd been cutting down to overexploit labor for a long, long time, and it's just become obvious under COVID. That's that's one theory, but that does empower workers. I mean, just from, like, the whole – if you think about worker power as in the ability for people to scab on you, you don't – have when you have – very high employment levels, there's no one who's going to be incentivized to scab. I think mean, it's as simple as that. that. That That's a very simple way of explaining it, but it is a way of explaining it, which means labor has more ability to strike or to do other actions. I, I Ironically, I do think that parts of the Great Resignation are a bad thing in so much that they indicate that in the United States, at least, organized labor is still so weak that strikes still have to be informal or they have to be at job site quitting Uh, quitting in mass as effective strikes because there is no. I actually think they're, I Mm -hmm. think
1: the great resignation and the strikes are kind of, they're related, but they're not in the sense that I I think the, so the strikes are more from like the traditional working class people who rely, who are just paid less, uh, lower wages and want to bargain for higher wages. Now that they're more in demand and there's a shortage, there's a lesser reserve army of labor. Uh, mm-hmm. so there's, because of that, they have more bargaining power, With the great resignation, I think it's that uh, from what I've seen, it's actually, uh, you know, this is, I don't have like the factual evidence to say where the demographics are when it comes to the great resignation, but you know, just, I paid a lot of attention to the anti-work subreddit. And it does mm-hmm. seem overwhelmingly that like the type of people quitting jobs are more so, um, white collar, middle-class professions, like people in office jobs who, Gained enough money to save already to live off of, but are kind of quitting uh, this the grind, so to speak.
0: Uh, so yeah, so so they have somewhat significant reserve. I've I've been wondering about that too because the was, BS like, job
1: sector, like the bullshit right, yeah. job sector, yeah,
0: yeah, the the the, the same uh, the people David Graeber writes about mm-hmm. uh, administrative work and stuff. I mean, and a lot of those jobs have become untenable, but uh, they also aren't super necessary or if they are necessary, they're necessary for legal constraints, not for actual productive constraints, um, which are, which is its own problems. Um, mm-hmm. so that leaves us where we're at. I, I uh, um, I was going to ask you, you know, you're in Canada, I'm in the States. Um, Where do you think Canadian politics is going to go right now? I somewhat think that, uh, not to sound conspiratorial, um, but this row with the convoy trucks has distracted people from the economic problems that are going to be coming up in Canada soon. um, In a way that that maybe, I mean, we're going to see it in the U.S. too. We're going to have our own truckers convoy in about a week. Um, Even though you guys don't even have mandates. No, and we don't have mandates. We, it's we never about have, the mandates. We don't yeah, have was... a national policy like <laughs> like most democratic states even have dropped our our, uh, our our. I mean, they pretty much just gave up during Omicron, anyway. So, like, you, uh, I, I will. I mean, they effectively decided to adopt the the herd immunity strategy, um, which it's not uh, even a
1: strategy. It's more like just giving up because yeah, we, the, we know that we. we we know it like doesn't work right like the immunity lasts as long as the vaccine does so it's not yeah. really a strategy
0: well it it is the it is the herd immunity every year in perpetuity i guess but um but i mean that my my point on on that is just to to say that uh um canada um has has fared a little better for, during parts of this Uh, that your social safety net was far more generous early on than ours. I mean, it almost always is, but um, it does seem like that may be ending under the Trudeau government. Um, What do you think that's going to mean for Canadian politics?
1: I don't know if our social safety net would end like so much because that's the difference really between the conservative and liberal party is that the, Concert- I would say the Liberal Party, for the first time under Trudeau, and this is the mainly only reason why I think Trudeau is like a lesser of evil to the Conservative Party, is that they have basically rejected austerity. The Liberal mm-hmm. Party used to be the one balancing budgets. Uh, they completely rejected that. Uh, they haven't embraced MMT. Obviously, they still have like wonky ideas about interest rates. But they have uh, basically stopped caring about the deficit, which I think is good. Uh, there's a lot of things going that went on with Canada and COVID. I think one big difference between Canada and the U S was um, we got something called CERB, which was basically like a basic income of around $2,000 mm-hmm. a month. It was only given to people who lost their job or can't work because of COVID. It wasn't universal. So there's a lot of people. Uh, of it was only given to people who lost their job. So there's some people who couldn't work. Like uh, for example, my barber couldn't work and he had to like work like illegally on, on uh because during lockdown just to make mm-hmm. ends meet uh because he he wasn't able to he wasn't uh, eligible for the serb uh but yeah the obviously the payments i think uh, it was a good thing largely it was it's better than the u.s where you only got like a one-time two thousand dollar check
0: right yeah we got well, we got three but they each one was one time and we got we got expanded. We got expanded unemployment, uh, which was which was fairly generous for our unemployment, but it was administered by the states, and, the st- and certain states could screw it up. Certain states actually also, a lot of the Republican states rejected, like stopped taking the expansion early. Um, uh, it, I, we have a much less centralized policy, just in general. It's much harder. Well, ours, than ours too.
1: About ours too is also a federalist system mm-hmm. so it's uh, a system where the province like the provinces are the ones setting the mandates mm. uh, also in canada except that in, in canada now there's about uh, three provinces saskatchewan quebec and um New- nova scotia who have removed mandates ontario mm. will be removing mandates in uh, march Mm-hmm. it's completely because of the truckers. I mean, people they'll try to say, Oh, it's our strategy. It's because they're scared of the truckers. They're all conveniently conservative parties, uh, governors. We don't have governors. We have premiers, uh, but, uh, it, it, that's the thing. The federal government in Canada is liberal. The, a lot of the, um, provincial governments are dominated by conservative parties who are pretty much completely capitulating to the trucker protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is another thing about, well, first I'll get in with my, I'll, I'll finish with the point about CERB, uh, the payments, mm-hmm. this, the payments gave workers a lot of leverage indirectly because a lot of people were able to quit their jobs actually, because, ironically, because of CERB, I was able to start my YouTube channel. I I would not normally, I've probably been able to have the time to do that, but there was, there was like a four month period where I was unemployed. So I was able to like start a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, so I think there, this has given people leverage as given led to sort of resignation, so to speak. Mm. Um, and this is why I I want to just get this point across. I don't, I, I don't like this is prediction. Will UBI become a reality in cap- capitalist countries? I don't think UBI, uh, at least not in the way it's like a real universal basic income will be implemented by neoliberal countries. Because as we've clearly seen, this is not good for the leverage of the capitalist class mm. uh, there's, there's this, it's really the same reason why they don't like full employment they don't like a job guarantee because then you can quit your job and get a new one you know there's mm. it just decreases the bargaining power so and there's this idea i mean there's some like leftists who think like ubi is there to like save capitalism who knows maybe uh, if demand is low enough but I don't. I don't think they're very scared of it, uh, because the experience with CERB, which was implemented out of desperation to revitalize consumer demand and prevent like complete catastrophe, uh, it is basically to decline the leverage of the uh, capitalist class. And you, what we have seen in politics in Canada is the you see, the Liberal Party is like the second most enthusiastic billionaires' party, kind of like the Democrats. Mm. Uh, not as bad, but they're they're like that. They play the same role. Uh, and you've seen a sort of shift from the uh, big business class, but even more, especially the small business class, towards the conservative party, a huge realignment, where the conservative party has been, there's this big push to end mandates ever since 2020. So mm-hmm. this, we're now manifesting itself as the freedom convoy that's about ending mandates. It's really the anti-mask movement um, kind of rebranded. And I think it plays the same role that the Tea Party played uh, in the opposition to Obamacare. And um, it's, it's you know, like lack of a better term, it's basically astroturfed, uh, the, freedom con- the Freedom Trucker Convoy. 90% of truckers in Canada are vaccinated, uh, and the Canadian Truckers Alliance unions uh, denounced the protests. Uh, you don't have any working demands, like working class demands from the protests. It's not about raising the wages of truckers or adding some mm-hmm. benefits like sick days, nothing. It's just all about the mandates and the masks. And basically all the COVID mandates, including the isolation. Uh, you know, the now it's been reduced to five days in
0: Canada instead of. Just like in the States. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now they're about, they want to eliminate it all. Mm. Uh, and this, there's a big incentive uh, in terms of this. See, this thing is I noticed a lot of leftists, they tend to think of only like the capitalist class as like billionaires, but like the small businesses, in times of crisis, almost like always, side to the right, and, right? Yeah, and the small business—they, they have ha- its the same dynamic as we know as Marxist, right? Is that they have the same relationship between employers and employees, and the mandates make it harder for one um, employers uh, em- employers to get uh, enough consumers, especially in like restaurants, bars, uh, concerts, all sort of industries, retail they're getting a declining rate of profit because of these restrictions. And it's also harder for workers to, I know discipline their workforce because of there's a huge, a lot of people started working from home. Those who Mm -hmm. were able to, especially in like advertising industries, they want, they don't like that. And I mean, just off, it's really clear why they don't like working from home. It's because it's not, it's actually proven to be more productive, but they they don't like it because it gives them less control over the workforce uh, as well as, they're um with, with the isolation you know workers can take leave they can they can take time off work this is bad for you know productivity exploitation rates so the really like the business owning class they want they've been wanting these mandates gone for a long time this was clear to me long before even just looking at the it should be obvious now with the convoy it's it's uh, getting like millions of dollars in donations over, almost half of which is coming from the united states and mm-hmm. you. Yeah. And you have uh, the Conservative Party of Canada overtly backing it and financially backing it. Um, it it's been clear since it, just by the numbers that this is not a working class protest and it's it's serving the benefit of the capitalist class. Uh, at least, you know, it's like when we talk about the capitalist class, there's some areas of the capitalist class, obviously, who benefited from COVID, like, you know, the online delivery type of companies uh this gig economy rent, rent
0: seekers in general benefit rent in COVID. seekers yeah rent right. seekers as well,
1: yeah, I mean, if you include rent seekers like facebook's technically like a rent seeker right exactly, way. yeah, yeah, techno feudalist <laughs> and uh, corporations they've benefited, but like the majority like p- traditional capitalists really haven't uh, they've been pretty hurt by it, so there's this big backlash uh to um the covid mandates for a very long time. And uh, although, like, even though it's obvious by the numbers that the convoy is like a project really to return back to normal profit mm-hmm. exploitation as usual, health, we don't care. Um, this was obvious to me as far back as 2020 because the Conservative Party was already wanting to remove all mandates uh, towards the end of 2020. And I remember just sometimes I, I go I go for like, these very long walks and sometimes I walk through these sort of like, there's like these neighborhoods that have, you know, the, the kind of bougie people, the, Mm. I wouldn't say like the super big bourgeoisie, but you know, the upper middle class. Right. And all of them had conservative signs and signs about ending mandates, but I didn't see that in my neighborhood or a lot of the, the more like working class neighborhoods. I didn't see that. And I, that was obvious to me for day one that, you know, this whole anti COVID well, I mean, anti restriction COVID restriction, was a right-wing project. And it's weird to see people on the left, like there's some people on the left today who are trying to claim this like freedom convoy is a working class thing. Richard Wolf recently said, uh, we can maybe, we should learn to see common ground and turn this into a general strike. It's like, how? General strike against their own businesses?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I pointed out to somebody, I was like, okay, one, historically speaking, truckers' strikes. I mean, for... <laughs> in specific the truckers strike was used in chile to try to undermine the ande government it was the first project of service right. to figure mm-hmm. out how to get past it secondly i will say yeah there might be some uh, some 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 workers involved oh, i'm in sure this. there are yeah I right, say right, right, right.
1: there's there's some for sure but it's but, like what i mean in terms of the interest the financial interest back but yeah
0: it's clearly yeah. uh it's clearly uh Commodity, uh, what we call resource intensive or commodity producing capital, which has fairly low profit margins, and and petite bourgeois people who I will say this to almost sound Bacaran on this. We probably should have thought a little bit more about in some of these uh rehabilitation uh, programs, um, that we did to keep them invested in the workers' protections. Uh, in the United States, however, we did. We did that in the dumbest way possible, which was these loans that were easily gamed and and uh, abused, uh, largely by churches and stuff. It was kind of crazy. Um, so you know, maybe I'm being a little bit too optimistic. That there was ever anything that would have been done about that, in, because it's clear that what's happening to Canadian politics is actually it's resembling U.S. politics in its in its class co- uh, coalitions, basically. Um, which it often does, but it seems to be more so under the, these restrictions. Um, and it is very strange. It's not it, Richard Wolf has been like this. There are all these, you know, um, people who are worried about the expansion of the state and I get being worried about the expansion of the state, but who've made it sound like these protections are universally opposed by workers. And I'm like, it, it really depends on Or that they
1: don't work. There's this idea that they don't work when it's in, at least in Canada, uh, the vaccine mandates alone um, upped Canada's vaccination rate from 60% to 90%. I mean, it, it works. (laughs) It it gets a lot of the people who are, who might not be like, they're not full, you know, QAnon or skeptics, but people who are like, do I really want to get this? You know, like if I don't have to, I won't. There's a lot of people like that, you know, who are on the fence. And when you have the travel mandate, instantly you have the vaccination rate. So it works, but there is this effort to say, Oh, and it doesn't work, you know?
0: Um, so it, it's been, it's been very strange to watch, to watch this time period where I've had a lot of people in general, this is corresponded with the expansion of this notion of PMC and somehow petty bourgeois truckers be, uh, are somehow not, uh, are, are somehow not petty bourgeois just because they're, blue collar i guess like there's been a lot of this confusion on the marxist left and part of it's because they don't it's like the, really... it
1: goes back to the joe the plumber thing
0: right exactly remember
1: with the tea party
0: right it's 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 just it's 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 buying it's actually buying into right-wing myths about what workers even are and deliberately conflating wage earner interest with petty B interest. And I I will admit, petty B, you know, it's hard to be petit bourgeois these days. I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, But uh, they're not the same thing as proletarians. Um, And also pretending that people with degrees aren't inherently proletarians because they have degrees and not because of their wage relationship also seems weird to me as well. Um, cause it's, you know, and so there's all this going on right now. And I'm like, well, you know, there might be workers in certain industries in like Alberta who are really negatively affected by the lockdowns, but in, for the most part, they're not. And, uh, if you look at what's going on in Ottawa, well, a whole lot of people aren't super happy about the, the, you know, Trudeau's emergency response powers, uh, no, almost nobody I know was supportive of the truck of the trucker uh, rallies and other, including a whole lot of Marxist groups and, and Marxist groups, frankly, that don't normally get along. But like the Communist Party of Canada, the Communist Party of Canada, ML and the IMT all took the same side on this. And that's it's like the weird. only thing they united on. <laughs> right. It's yeah. just it, it's just bizarre. So to hear all these people in the UK and America try to seize in on this as a like a way to do a general strike or as a, or, or even that it's the same as the yellow vest movement. I was like the yellow vest movement was about technocrats raising the price of gasoline which affected which did affect like all workers. That's different from from restrictions that pretty much only affect truckers. Like um and the and i've also had a lot of people point out to me you know like which truckers are there and which ones aren't like there's not like if you look at the the trucker population of canada a lot of the more proletarianized truckers are um
1: southeast asian
0: southeast asian particularly mm-hmm. punjabi and they're not involved at all so yeah. our, i haven't our... seen
1: i i've only seen probably a total of like 3 non white people in all of mm-hmm. like the protest footage <laughs> i mean like you know not to say that's an argument in itself but it it's very clear uh, there's a certain demographic of this protest. I mean, there is a certain middle-class culture um, like as stereotypical as it is. There's some truth to it. Like there's a, there's a lot of people out there, right. Who they're, they just want to go back to going to Arby's and not wear a mask. <laughs> and you know, they, they want to go to hockey games and not have to wear a mask. Uh, they want to whatever, like there's this idea of a, uh, the thing is, it, because in, by and large, this is the middle class dream, right? The middle class dream that's sold by capitalism kind of to kind of make middle class people feel like they're separate for, or above uh, proletarians is that, you know, you live this consumer lifestyle uh, and all that. And because COVID kind of, I mean, not really deprived them of that, but to a certain extent, uh, there's this huge backlash. Like first world problems, really. And I mean, to be honest, I always I hate third worldism. I, I I'm not a Maoist at all. I hate Maoism. But this is the first time, like, the, seeing the reaction to this with COVID has made me think. You know, I might read that settler's book <laughs> that every that every everybody is always recommending.
0: Uh, I've read it. I I uh, it's it's a mixed bag. Um, but uh, having lived in the developing world for a good period, I, I was like. Yeah, why can't I why do we have so much more trouble with this? Um uh it's it's been it's been interesting. Um, particularly the vaccine and mass mandates, because I'm like, if you don't want lockdowns, I'm like, I don't really want lockdowns either. I think they're psychologically destructive. But like like that is your that's the that's the epidemiologically safe way out. Why are you throwing a, a fit about that too? Like um, and and for people who think it's going to just stop with the COVID vaccine because because of the Omicron variant or whatever, and that's what what's pro- was prompting this. Um, I've known people who I thought were smart, like, make really <laughs> dumb arguments about vaccines. And I was like, uh, you, you realize that this vaccine is still more effective than the flu vaccine. But I've also seen this expand out just general anti-vax sentiment, including stuff like, and I've also seen the res- the resurgence of stuff like AIDS denial, um, which I hadn't seen in like 10-15 years. <laughs> so it's it's gonna be interesting the the, the downstream effects of this. Um, and it it has been strange to me um how this has become a proxy for whether or not like one's um political orientation regardless of what one calls themselves um uh so yeah i i I, i'm a little worried about it i i uh i I have also like the the, uh the trucker the trucker convoy in the u.s i'm just like what is it yeah what is this even doing like it it like there you don't even have as clear a policy objective as you do in canada like most states don't even have anything right now that are restricting,
1: uh, restricting this, movement this is my critique of left populism okay is left populism you know tr- will try to like cap capitalize and, and entail um like certain popular sentiments and they'll take them for their word mm-hmm. uh you know this is what richard wolf's been doing and it says oh you know i get that some people the anti-vax people are crazy but the anti-mandate people they i understand them they're scared about government overreach and it's like It's not really all this, what this is about. I mean, most, the vast majority of people I've seen who are, you know, anti-mandate were just people who were previously anti-mask. It's really, I haven't seen the people who, I mean, it depends on how the mandate's enforced, obviously, like there's different ways. Like, I think some people have different ideas as to what the mandate is. I think some people who think that you need like a mandate to get a citizenship. I mean, that would obviously be a very different conversation. That's not what's happening.
0: Right At all. Oh, or well, and and the U.S. mandates, for example, um, the U.S. employer mandates, I knew were going to be a problem because they were so weirdly selective in who they did and did not apply to. They weren't universal, mm. um, and because of that, I I was fairly sure that a conservative court would be able to overturn them uh, on on decent jurisprudence. Um, but that again, that's not about efficacy that's just about the weirdness of u s law um decentralization in general right
1: this this whole pandemic, to be honest, has made me a lot like actually this i uh, will admit mm-hmm. t- from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty two it like pushed me from left calm to sort of centrist leninist mm-hmm. <laughs> to a certain extent uh just because just and i also um just seeing like really, for me, what worries me about COVID is just how, what this tells us about the climate catastrophe. Yeah. Because frankly, there's going to be a lot of drastic measures that are going to have to be put in place, which will require like fast action and uh, the agreement in between provinces and, and states. But it's also just the public reaction to it. I mean, we haven't properly conditioned. The fact is, is that people will have to deal with sort of like, quote unquote, uh, government power, government decisions. And I think we have the the public has a very <laughs> Orwellian idea of how power works uh, that it's all like top down uh, that it's the the baddies in the government or the globalists who want to impose anything and rather that power is much more multifaceted, often mm-hmm. horizontal, and has con- conflicting interests. I think all of this this sort of backward sentiments that I think ro- are really rooted in popular media and education system is to like how power works you know we're taught in america and canada where the free societies and the east like they're all collectivist etc centralist so there's this idea of freedom that is very very one dimensional uh, and people will you know on the right especially will question the, uh, vaccine policies and uh, their encroachment on their freedom but then they won't question the fact that they have to work nine to five to exist or to live in a house Mm. or pay for water (laughs) they won't question these like types of freedoms and i think it's uh it's rooted in that uh really i think it can boil down to soft power and hard power because most i think by and large i mean we obviously have hard power like a insane military police apparatus uh especially even more in the u.s but let's like most of society is governed in my opinion, at least when it comes to, I have a video about this called the burnout society, uh, Mm. which goes into the theories of Byung-Chul Han and psychopolitics is a lot of like how people are ideologically conditioned and governed is through soft power. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the ways people are actually controlled by like the government by capitalists is in a very indirect way, in a way that gets people to control themselves. And because of that, um, people are often uh, very oblivious to the real forms of control that exist, And when suddenly there's like this desperate attempt to, you know, keep the system in place through like a hard power measure, like uh, vaccine mandates. then there's suddenly, Oh, we're in totalitarianism now as if they weren't before. Right.
0: Right. I mean, that's, yeah, it, it's, it's well to me how, what people miss about the way governments actually work. Um, and it's, I mean, you know, the idea that the United States, I have my critiques of China and whatnot, but having lived in East Asia, the idea that the United States was actually uh, more individualist, I used to laugh at because I'm like, no, I mean, yes, people are more socially oriented, but so are, so are we, we just lie to ourselves about it. It's like... Like, I mean, like, and you see this, I mean, you literally see this by the fact that I can predict someone's politics based on their age and region um, <laughs> as much yeah. as anything else. Um, I, I, the, the one thing I'll say where you see class politics show up um, in, in America is that working class people are just more likely to be completely depoliticized now. That was not true before the 1950s, but it is true now. Um variety of reasons for that and i think they're kind of obvious when you think about it but because e- even the one thing we can say about the democrats is while they had a chance to not choose austerity at the beginning of this crisis and made forward foregone uh or at least like gestures in that direction we can see that even if it's only for two people in the senate but i kind of think that's i think that that's a cop-out um that they have decided that they're going to go the austerity route, and um, uh, there, if there's going to be social policy that's progressive, it's going to be in states. And as I told someone the other day, I'm like, yeah, the the, the California Democrats sold out and not doing single payer, but it also doesn't make sense for a state government that doesn't have a currency sovereignty to try to do mm-hmm. single payer, like. That never made that much sense. Like California is going to get into into it will get into funding binds that the feds would never get into, um, and the feds would make sure they did. <laughs> like so, it's it it's funny to, to to be in this situation. Um, I'd like to thank you for coming on. I think this has been useful. Uh, so we can see the the application. Um, and, and there's anything you like to plug before you go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would recommend checking out uh, f- for those who haven't seen my channel. It's uh, One Dime, number one dime. Um, and uh, you can watch them my videos on Company Time. Uh, <laughs> I'd recommend watching the uh, Tax the Rich video, The Deficit Myth. The videos I'm most proud of are the Burnout Society and Why Billionaires Prefer Democrats. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that's probably a very relevant one for sure. And uh, maybe a concluding point uh, kind of to circle back what we originally started is one way I, I think the biggest way in which Marxism and uh, MMT are I don't I don't want to say compatible but mutually useful uh, at least when fused is that MMT really takes the emphasis away from monetary abstract monetary values and what is the debt what is the cost to the real economy. Which I think that's what Marxism was always about. It goes back to labor. It's not mm-hmm. about the cost. It's about you know the laborers who make things uh, and, and the real resources that uh, create them. So I think you know that's something that uh, Marxists or MMT people who are skeptical of Marxism should think about and I really, um, as usual, look into uh, I read literature on both ends. Uh, it's kind of what I'm trying to do with my videos to kind of encourage people to kind of explore these things.
0: All right. Uh, I would tell... uh, If I were to make a book suggestion, I would tell people to read um, uh, Kelton, but also uh, check out... uh,
1: Seven Deadly Frauds by uh, Mosler, mainly because that's like a pamphlet. It's like you can read it in like an hour.
0: And I would also take out the work uh, um, Blood Blood and Money by David McNally, which is for... For the for the Marxist approach, that's similar as it, you know. Um, so that's what I would tell people to check out um, and follow these follow these debates. I think I think a whole lot of people who've had a whole lot of different assumptions are about to. I don't know. I I I, I am uh, I am worried that the Democrats are about to go on an austerity binge, and, and I don't know that the Liberals in Canada are going to do the same thing. But it it's it's. I, I'm I'm worried they're about to take the exact wrong lesson from from uh, the last couple of uh, rounds of elections. But, of course, they're the Democrats. It seems to be what they do. All right. And with that, we're out. Night. Thank you for supporting VarmBlog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube, under my name, see Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review iTunes or your pod catcher choice. Have a great evening.